We all realise how important shareholders are to allow us to do what, what we love. I've been in the business now over 15 years and it's the time when you spend talking to shareholders that is the most rewarding because they're the people we want to make a difference for. We can create whatever we want. You know, we have a phenomenal opportunity to change. I am noticing more and more our investors bringing along that next generation, whether it's their, their children or their grandchildren. In our game, it's the highest quality of information it tends to win. So what we've been able to do is add these areas of expertise. Hey, I'm the old guy. I do very little. <laughs> it's everyone else in the organisation <laughs> is doing a lot. And we've got enormous depth. Each of them feed on each other in terms of providing high quality information and adding value to each other. To me, I think listed investment companies are the holy grail of investing because you get an opportunity to buy a dollar of assets for potentially 80 cents. You've been with me for, you know, for 15 years. We've done it before, we know how to do it, and that's you know, what we'll be able to deliver. Just fostering a really healthy culture of teamwork, staying focused on, on our shareholders, and it's exciting. I think the next few decades will continue to, to be an exciting time for us. So today it looks like Trump's out of the White House. I'd love to start with, what, what does that mean for the market? Assuming Biden wins, uh, which it seems um, yeah, a foregone conclusion now, even though there'll be some legal wranglings, uh, uh, eventually sanity will prevail. Uh, and you know, so we'll have a Democrat um, in the White House. And, and historically, Democrats have been good for equity markets, which is a little bit counterintuitive, you'd think. Um, but they're, they're big spending. Um, you know, so to me, it's, it's probably interesting where the, the, the Senate, you know, they, you know, the Democrats won't get control of the Senate. So that probably puts a, a nice check and balance. It, it could inhibit uh, a lot of what Biden wants to do. So um, you know, the big spending part of the Democrats might be controlled to a degree. Um, so I, I see it as, um, as, as positive and, and to have um, someone else running the free world or being, you know, then I actually think it's significantly positive for society. And here in Australia, obviously, interest rates are at record lows. Do you think, you know, rates will be lower for longer? What does that mean for equities here domestically? I mean, it looks like it. And uh, you know, the comments from the Reserve Bank the other day you know, about you know, the quantitative easing strategies uh, and dropping interest rates to you know, 0.1 of a percent um, really means that um, you know, real assets uh, w will be um, you know, highly sought after. A and you know, just globally, you know, the, the sort of flooding of um, liquidity into the system ha has to be positive for real assets and obviously equities are uh, beneficial for equities. So Jeff, just thinking about Wilson Asset Management over the last two decades, what's, you know, it's obviously grown a lot. What's changed in that time? In terms of investing, you know, we've, what's been important to us all the way through is you know, having that interaction with management so we can really understand how a company makes money. And then we value a company and then we find a catalyst that we believe will change the value of that company for the positive. Now, 
Um, you know, so effectively, we're looking for undervalued growth companies with a catalyst. And that gets modified uh, um, in terms of what lens we're using. You know, we started off focusing on uh, really areas that, you know, when I started in the funds management industry in 1980, um, we were focused on. And that was you know, small and mid-cap industrial companies. Uh, and, and, and as time has gone on, we've been able to you know, add to that uh, level of expertise um, and we've got you know, Oscar, who's the lead portfolio manager on, on that area you know, with, with his team. You know, then Matt, um, who, who really had an expertise in looking at larger companies and really you know, a fantastic uh, ability to look at macro trends. Um, you know, was very interested in setting up a, a large cap company, which is you know, WAM Leaders. So we went from WAM Capital and the various entities. Um, to, to WAM leaders, and, and that was highly positive for the business because we had people now, there's, now there's three people there focusing you know, purely on the, on the larger companies and getting access to high quality information that everyone in the organisation could, um, could use. And then Katrina, who worked with us you know, earlier, in the early days, you know, then she'd come back from overseas, wanted to um, you know, set up a global fund and, and joined us. Uh, and now we've got you know, WAM Global, which again is another level of you know, information we get, which you know, as, as you know, Kate, but you know, other people might, we all sit in an open plan office. Um, it has been a challenge you know, with COVID, but everyone's coped with it exceptionally well in terms of how we can communicate. Um, you know, so it's really sharing, sharing that information. And then more recently, um, yeah, we've, we've had the opportunity to take over BAF um, and is now you know, the WAM Alternate Asset Fund. And Dania, you know, just a high-quality individual in that alternate asset space, has joined us. And again, that, that gives the whole organisation um, really access to another higher-level quality of information. So you know, in our game, it's the highest quality of information you know, tends to win. So what we've been able to do is, uh, in a logical manner, add, add these areas of expertise, you know, th which actually feeds on the whole organisation. Some people say, oh, look, you're doing a lot. You know, it, it's all very logically um, you know, planned out and actually it benefits everyone. Also, personally, as an investor, it, it's allowed me, you know, I virtually had no money in offshore assets, so it allowed me to put money in WAM Global and you know, people will see I've been buying them more recently because they're trading at a discount NTA, which is a great opportunity. Uh, and then with um, you know, WAM Alternate Assets, you know, it's, a, it's another way of getting exposure to another asset class, you know, which doesn't work like equity. So it gives you a nice level of diversification. And you know, I've been you know, buying them because they're trading at a discount. Um, you know, so to me, it, it really is, you know, I think we've got a really good um, you know, group of individuals and, and, um, and the areas that how we work uh, is very much, um, you know, f feeds, each of them feed on each other in terms of providing high quality information and adding value to each other. So WAM Alternative Assets is the, is the newest addition uh, to, the, to the LIC stable. You know, the business has grown a lot. We often get questions um, from investors around that growth. We've, we're obviously always uh, adding 
new members of the team. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that, Jeff? Yeah, and, and I think over the last 12 months, have we added 15%? We've increased the, the team by about 15% in terms of personnel. Um, I, I sort of, um, I feel flattered that when I talk to people, they say, oh, Jeff, you're doing so much. Hey, I'm the old guy. I do very little. <laughs> it's everyone else in the organisation <laughs> is doing a lot. Uh, and, and we've got enormous depth. Um, you know, so the, um, you know, the area I tend to focus on is, would be more activist. Um, you know, so maybe that's why they think um, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot. And, and you know, if you think I've done a lot, been doing a lot over the last few months, you know, what was I doing last year? Virtually nothing. <laughs> So, um, yeah, to me, I, I do that and I, I tend to look at listed investment companies um, and the ones trading at you know, discounts and, and, and trying to work out whether there's any opportunities for us there. So just on uh, listed investment companies, you've spoken before about the, you know, the golden decade of listed investment companies. They've been around for over 100 years we're now in, in what you've described as a consolidation phase. What do you mean by that? With most industries, you'll go through a, a strong growth phase uh, and, then, um, and then after that, you'll, be, you'll go through a consolidation you know, period or consolidation phase. Uh, and that's where you know, the strong get stronger uh, and the weak uh, either uh, get absorbed by the, the strong players or, or fall by the, the wayside. And it, it's just how it, uh, industries tend to um, you know, develop over time. Uh, now, with listed investment companies, there was another period back in 03, 04, um, which was, uh, was, was a strong growth period for them. I think there were 20 plus new IPOs in, nearly, in a nine month period, really a short period of time. And then um, you know, three or four years later, that the, they went through a consolidation phase where some were taken over, we took one over, um, uh, or some decided that the structure wasn't right for them. I think what a lot of people, um, they, they, they think, oh, we, we want to have a listed investment company. Uh, to me, I think listed investment companies are the, the holy grail of investing because you get an opportunity to buy a, a dollar of assets for potentially 80 cents. Now, to me, it's nearly unbelievable that that could be the case. And, and, and the reverse is, you know, with you know, most of ours, um, you know, you're buying, you're paying more than a dollar. You know, they're trading at premiums to NTAs. Now, the two of our entities that are trading at discounts is, you know, WAM Global and WAM Alternate Assets. Uh, and we're pretty convinced that over time, you know, they will go to NTA if not a premium. Uh, but there's, there is a, a great opportunity. Um, and what happens is when people list the a listed investment company, they, they don't realise that when you list, they think, well, that's, you know, they've got to the grand final. That's just the start of pre-season. Uh, and there's a lot of work you need to do once you're listed. Um, and so people think, oh, great structure. The fund manager, I'm going to list, um, I'm going to get a pool of capital that he believes is permanent, which it is not. Now, because it's the shareholders' capital, so it can be taken away at any point in time, uh, and they have to perform. Uh, and you know, we've made two takeover bids recently um, for listed investment companies that you know, we had bought uh, 
a dollar of assets at 80 cents and then something had happened you know, that we believe wasn't in shareholders' interests and we'd taken that opportunity um, to make takeover bids for them. So you'll, you'll see the number of listed investment companies, I, I think, uh, you know, shrink. Um, and what, what I've noticed you know, over the last little period um, that even though, you know, go back a year or two, a year or so ago, the discounts were quite large, the discounts are narrowing, uh, you know, because they are great investment vehicles um, and over time they perform. Uh, and if not, they, you know, they, they probably perform. A lot of the studies show how a closed end pool of capital performs better. A listed investment company performs better than uh, another, other types of funds. And just on a listed investment company, what are, what are the, 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 what do you need for a listed investment company to be successful? Yes. Well, well the first thing is performance. You know, the, the second thing is the great thing about the structure is the listed investment company has the ability to pay dividends to shareholders over time. So you can, you can deliver a growing stream of fully frank dividends. And I'm, I'm sure yourself, like myself, I think everyone at Wilson Asset Management, you know, we're very incredibly pleased that in, in this period where companies are cutting their dividends, you know, we've been able to um, increase our dividends on, on nearly, well, I think WAM Capital, we maintain it at a very high level, but most of our other listed investment companies, we've been able to increase uh, and, and give people give dividend guidance of that we think will be able to continue increasing. So the second thing is being able to give shareholders a growing stream of fully frank dividends. Uh, the third thing is treat shareholders with respect. And that's you know, when you're raising money, uh, do it uh, so it's in all shareholders' interests. And one of the companies we bid for recently you know, you know, had a capital raising at a big discount, which was incredibly unfair for all shareholders. So that was the catalyst for us to bid for that company. Um, and, and the fourth thing is to really have a, a good shareholder engagement um, communication and, and marketing you know, strategy. So to me, they're the, they're the four things. And a lot of people, uh, they miss on the last, you know, on the third and the fourth one. So, Jeff, you talked about with listed investment companies that they can trade at premiums, they can trade at discounts. Can you give me some examples of, of where perhaps one of our LICs is, you know, has moved through that cycle? Well, I suppose, you know, the, the first one we floated, which was WAM Capital, you know, that um, yeah, in the first two years, you know, we, we did an IPO, um, raised the money at a dollar. The, the first two years, you know, we paid significant fully frank dividends. I think it was 12 cents the first year fully franked and 14 cents the second year fully franked uh, and, and performed very well. We were still trading at a discount to NTA. And what you tend to find, it takes a period of time for the share registers to tighten up. Once you, you list it on the stock market, for some reason, you know, people that have bought in the IPO, they change their mind or um, they decide to sell. Uh, and it takes a little while to effectively get your tribe and, and, and the people that realise they want to invest in what you're doing. Uh, and it really took two and a half years for WAM Capital. In, in, the, in the first period, we were trading at a 20% discount. So over time, the share register tightened up uh, and probably two and a half to three years out, we went to NTA and then went to a premium, uh, went to a 20 odd percent premium. I know now we're trading at a higher premium than that. So you know, the... Um, 
so, you know, the share register is probably a bit tight um, from that perspective. And probably more recently, you know, WAM Leaders, you know, which was our second most recent IPO, uh, that took a little period of time for, you know, the good performance from the guys, the increasing dividends, and then the then you tend to find the, the share register tightening. Um, you know, say a year ago, it was trading at a 10% discount. Now it's trading at a premium. And you'd assume the premium will slowly increase as they continue to perform. And I suppose the more you know, recent one, uh, our, our more recent uh, IPO, which is WAM Global, that's just going through the exact same process. You know, we've started the dividend, um, you know, actually, just at our recent board meeting, yeah, we were uh, at Wham Global. We we're just talking about how how pleased we are in terms of that big profit reserve we've got there. So you know, we've got to look at you know, whether we give shareholders guidance and, and the plan on on growing that dividend over time. So you'll find you know, Wham Global is trading at a discount now. You know, I would assume you know, that'll in the next period of time that'll go to NTA if not a premium, and the more recent. Um, member of our flam family, you know, which is you know, WAM Alternate Assets. You know, that is, um, you know, we took that over when everyone knew that we were coming in as the manager. That was trading at about a 30% discount um, to its assets. It's trading at around a 10% discount now. I'd assume as we you know, get our feet under the table and people realise you know, how good Dania is, who's our um, portfolio manager will be responsible for that. Uh, you know, th th that'll get to NTA if not a premium. So it, it is a process and you've got to be aware of it. And as you know, you know, you know you've been with me for, you know, for 15 years. You know, you, you know, we, we've done it before. We know how to do it. Um, and, and that's you know, what we'll be able to deliver. The, the problem is uh, a number of other people that you know, decide to float listed investment companies aren't prepared you know, to really commit significant resources. You know, like in terms of that share engagement communication team, you know, we put you know, a couple of million dollars plus a year into that. So, and that, that, is, that is a cost to us as the manager, but a benefit to shareholders you know, that they can get a, a true reflection of the value of, of their assets. It's interesting. I'm, I'm just reading a book at the moment about building good habits and about doing all the small things over a long period of time. And I was, I was thinking a lot about our business and, and how over the last two decades, we've continually you know, treated shareholders with respect. We've, we've always loved engaging with them. And it is, it's all those little things. It's making sure that you know, the number of times I talk to shareholders that say, you know, I called the office and, and Jeff did call me back or, you know, I spoke to, I spoke to you, Kate, at, at one of the roadshows. Yeah. If you remember, I've got a question and, and, and to be able to give them our time yeah. uh, and to be able to give them um, the opportunity to, you know, ask questions, you know, provide feedback, take that feedback on board. And, and as you said earlier, you know, that the corporate affairs team, you know, we're, we're continually, you know, adding people to, the, to that team. They're very, you know, high quality, uh, you know, professionals who, who take great pride in how we communicate with our investors, you know, whether it's the stock stories and, uh, you know, views on the market or writing submissions, you know, to government. You know, there's, there's so many different, different ways that, 
that we think that we can, you know, engage with our investors. So, um, you know, it's just so important, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. And, and to me, it's, it's um, effectively, it's so fundamental uh, and so logical um, where so many boards they think they're on a different plane to the shareholders where we understand, hey, we're shareholders like them and you know, they are, you know, they're investing in the market like we are. Um, and you know, the difference is we spend you know, every hour of every day thinking about it and they mightn't spend that amount of time. And I'm sure a lot of our shareholders, if they spent you know, every hour of every day looking at investing, you know, they'd be probably better than us. Just on, with you mentioned WAM Alternative Assets, there's about 3,000 new shareholders to the Wilson Asset Management family. What would you like to say to them? Well, first of all, welcome. Uh, what, what I find, and I think you mentioned you find, is when you engage with new shareholders, you know, they, I remember a story you know, when, soon after the GFC when we made a takeover bid for uh, Premium, uh, another listed investment company that was finding things tough at that time. Uh, I was ringing the top 20 shareholders and I remember you know, ringing one of the shareholders and saying, look, it's Jeff Wilson. I'm chairman of uh, Wham Capital. It's made a takeover bid. Uh, and he, he was very incredibly sceptical. Why was I ringing him? Am I trying to persuade him? And I said, look, your choice. You can either accept cash and leave or you can become a, a Wham Capital shareholder. You know, it's totally your choice. And he was highly suspicious. And, and I said to him, I said, look, when has the chairman of another company rung you? And he said, never. I said, well, <laughs> now, so you've got to give me some points for that. And, and with all the new shareholders, the other 3,000 is, it, it will be a journey with, with us and them. You know, first of all, we've got to perform. You know, we need to be able to uh, make money so we can provide a, a stream of dividends. You know, obviously, we need to treat them you know, fairly and with respect, uh, and, and we need to engage with them. And, and that'll you know, really, we hope that they, um, you know, Provide, you know, give us an opportunity because we believe that over time that we'll be able to you know, really deliver some good returns for them. In terms of growth opportunities in the business, obviously alternatives is a big growth opportunity. Where else do you see the business growing? Uh, to me, the, the great thing about you know, the market and, 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 uh, and any business is, well, A, you, know, you need to be growing, otherwise, if you're not, you're going backwards. That's what everyone tells me. Uh, the in terms of you know, opportunities, it is it is dynamic, uh, and, and you know, we are opportunistic. So uh, by nature, so and, and flexibility. You know, what I what I've always learned in investing, you know, flexibility is one of the most important things. Um, so you know, we think the the Wham Leaders area, you know. The guys, Matt and his team there, have done an exceptional job. You know, we believe that can continue to grow. Um, as, con as Katrina continues to perform you know, with WAM Global, that's an area that can grow. Alternate assets, you know, that's, that's an area that can grow. 
and if we can get really good, high-quality individuals that can add value to the whole organisation, you know, then we, you know, as you know, Kate, you know, we're always looking, you know, we're always looking for those, and uh, if we can provide an opportunity for them, because I mean, when when, when I'm doing interviews with people, yeah, you know, I'm more interested in what they want to achieve, uh, and, and trying to work out what their drivers are, and um, because. To me, the beautiful thing or, or the, the phenomenal opportunity we have is we can create whatever we want. You know, effectively, you know, we can paint whatever picture we want. So to me, it's, you know, it, it really is you know, we have a phenomenal opportunity to, um, you know, to change. All right, Jeff. Well, it's been great chatting to you this, this afternoon and uh, looking forward to the next few decades at Wilson Asset Management and, and seeing how we continue to grow and evolve during that time. So thank you. Look, look thank you, Kate. And bef before we leave, I'd like to ask you a question now. I know we've been, it's been a conversation. So you've been with Wilson Asset Management 15 years. You're CEO. Um, you've done, you know, as you've been CEO, the organisation has, has just grown and prospered. Uh, you know, tell me, what it, what is the secret? Look, it's the people. You know, we're all on the same path. We're all wanting to make a difference. We have got, you know, I, I always say we've got the best shareholders. You know, we've talked about a number of stories this morning. As you said, it's it's painting that picture of, of giving people opportunities to, you know, perhaps do a new product or, or list a new company. Um, it's, it's really exciting. And I think, uh, you know, just fostering a really healthy culture of teamwork, um, you know, staying focused on, on our shareholders and, and treating them fairly, um, you know, standing up for them where we can, uh, you know, continuously looking at better ways to communicate and engage with them. I think they're all the, all the parts that, that make it a, a great company and it's exciting. I think the next, you know, few decades will continue to, you know, to be a, you know, exciting time for us. We're quite positive in terms of the outlook uh, and we think that you can lose that in terms of all the noise um, that we have had over the last, the last year. We are continuing to find lots of great ideas. Where we're finding more incremental ideas is actually out of Europe. What we find interesting though is that um, the penetration levels of e-commerce vary vastly between different geographies. We're currently seeing a generational shift in how payments occur with the shift from cash and cheque towards um, you know, digital and API-driven payment processes. When we caught up, it was a it was a really crazy time, and it's been a, a busy year. There's been um, a lot of headlines dominating the news flow around the pandemic, U.S. election, uh, stimulus in the market, and we just even more recently uh, news on a potential vaccine. Um, it's a lot of noise for people to get consumed in. I was wondering if you give me your take on what people have been overlooking, or what are people missing? the case for optimism as we look forward. Uh, there has been an enormous amount of noise. Um, there has been some doom and gloom associated with the pandemic. It, you know, a lot of people have had a tough year. Uh, but as we look forward, we're very optimistic. We can, um, we know a lot more about COVID. The US election is is now passed and the outcome, um, the setup looks quite positive for equities. Uh, and in terms of stimulus, we've got governments that very supportive, central banks that are incredibly supportive. Uh, and so we're positive, we're quite positive in terms of the outlook. Uh, and we think that 
you can lose that in terms of all the noise um, that we have had over the last the last year. If you shift that to the portfolio, how does that? How have you moved things around to to capture some of that optimistic view that you've got? So initially, um, we focused on liquidity and 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 bought a, n- a number of the the larger cap names that had really been been sold off. Um, as we've as we've gone through um, the reopening of economies um, and a lot of the share prices of some of those larger cap stocks have done exceptionally well. Um, we have been agile um, and we have taken advantages of disconnects in in valuation and have um, found a lot more opportunities in the small and mid cap uh, end of the market. Um, from a from a geographic perspective, um, we had a um, very heavy weighting in the in the US, and and we still love a lot of the businesses that we own in in the US. Um, but where we're finding more incremental ideas is actually out of Europe, um, and and we find that a lot of the valuations there um, aren't as extreme as the US. Um, but we can still find businesses that are really that you know are growing fantastically um, that have. Um, very high quality management teams and are potentially earlier on in terms of some of those um, structural trends that are that are occurring um, through the rest of the world. Yeah, and I, I think in a year like this, it's brought home the importance of the ability to um, have that flexible view on the world and, and to be able to step back and to, to look where the opportunities exist, whether it's small to mid caps, whether it's in Europe, um, but it's continuing to stick to that process. Great businesses, but we're just looking for those great businesses at, at very attractive prices. So when we caught up in May, you talked about a couple of themes that you were looking to, to put into the portfolio, e-commerce, digital payments, which we know have been strong. And you also introduced the concept of thrifty stores, which was an interesting one for the time. Um, are they still in the portfolio and, and how have they played out? In times of uncertainty, um, pe- people ten- tend to tighten their belts, uh, and so we we had that thematic um, that that we liked, and we played that thematic through a number of names around the world. For example, in in the US, we owned the largest dollar stores operator, Dollar General. Uh, in Japan, a, a, the a discount retailer called Kobe Busan, um, and in in Europe. Uh, a discount uh, store operator called B&M Value Retail. Uh, and what we've seen um, is that the consumer has has tightened their belt. We had a lot of those stores remained open. And so they were massive beneficiaries of, of uh, other places where you could shop not being, not being open. Um, we have um, reduced some of the positions in, in those stocks just because, because they've done well. Um, but we do think there is still uncertainty in the world. We are more optimistic on on the outlook, um, but we still we still like the thematic and the and what we liked about those individual businesses was that they had store rollouts themselves. They had really high quality management teams, uh, and their valuations were were really compelling. So still still like them. We very much believe in digital payments um, having longevity to to the theme. We're currently seeing a generational shift in how payments occur with the shift from cash and check towards um, you know, digital and API-driven payment processes. It's been 10 plus years of a, a shift to, to digital payments, um, but cash remains a, an $18 trillion opportunity globally. And even over that time frame, the amount of um, cash transactions has actually grown. So a lot of reasons on our behalf to think that the the digital payments thematic has a, a lot of runway left to go. Um, now we have a, a we play that space and we play it through names like Fiserv and, and FIS amongst others within the portfolio. Um, with these structural themes, it seems like everyone's on the trade. 
So it's the, it can continue, I believe that, but where's the value? Most companies in the space, if they trade on a PE at all, it, it's north of a hundred times, which uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's not where we like to hunt traditionally. So what we've done is we've found companies that trade on, on 20 times, 22 times PE. And then on e-commerce, you see the tailwinds continue to, to support that, that opportunity? Yeah, we think we've seen a, an acceleration in a trend that was already there. Companies uh, in, in playing in the home and furnishings area in, in Germany, um, Home24 and, and Westwing are, are two names um, listed, in, listed in Germany, um, trading on fractions of, of their, the peers um, globally uh, and yet with an enormous runway uh, uh, ahead. Um, they, um, the German market, for example, in home and furnishings is, is, is at that eight to 10% um, penetration level was six or seven pre-COVID. Uh, and, and yet UK and, and US, you know, well north of the, uh, north of 20. Um, so those companies trade, you know, Wayfair is the, is the peer in the US. Um, trades, you know, has a market cap of 24 billion. These are the 400, 500 mil market cap euro um, level, and yet have uh, growing at the same level, net cash balance sheet, management teams um, well incentivized, well aligned, and uh, and margins that are actually already better um, than than that, their US peer. And so, outside of those three thematics, what are some of the other ideas that are in the portfolio? One would be the cloud. Um, you know, it's, you know, well discussed and, and well known, but through COVID, we've all been forced to, to migrate, you know, w whether it's us having with our travel, um, we do, you know, at the moment, we're doing all our international um, company meetings via Zoom and Teams, etc. Uh, and, and yet, we're very early days in terms of transitioning um, onto the to the cloud. If you look across across the world, I think, you know, fifty percent of dollars are still spent on premise, uh, and so we think um, there's you know the, there's a significant longevity in in that transition, um, and you know there has been some pull forward. So you know you had the Microsoft. Um, CEO talking earlier in COVID about two years demand being pulled forward into two months, um, but but that weight of dollars is still significant in terms of on-prem versus versus off. So we're excited about about opportunities there still. And Nick, is there anything else that that you've been doing some work on? Healthcare as a trend um, has a lot of longevity to it. Um, demographics are also a significant tailwind here, where. In the US, at least, by 2030, um, the old will outnumber the young. Um, so one in five individuals will be over 65. And um, it, it's a truism in healthcare that you spend more as you age. Um, so there's a couple of strong tailwinds behind the healthcare thematic. We play healthcare through a number of names in the fund, but in particular, um, Avantor and Thermo Fisher are great support companies to those companies doing the, the pharmaceutical research and development. They're not exposed to FDA approvals. Um, they won't be a disappointment if a drug doesn't pass a phase three trial, but they're set to benefit from these, these really strong uh, long-term tailwinds that are in healthcare. Where are you seeing some compelling value? Talk me through a story yeah. that you're really passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd, one I'd love to talk through is um, Avantor, who are a, kind of a, a life sciences and, and tools company. Um, now they've done very well, so they're in the mid cap category at this point, but um, certainly not in the large cap like, like some of their peers in that space. Um, and what they do is 
they both produce and distribute um, consumables and equipment to the pharmaceutical, the industrial, and the government and academic end markets. And what we really like a lot about the stock, but there are three things in particular that we think makes it a great name to hold right now. Um, the first is that 50% of the company is driven by biopharma as an end market. And Biopharma is doing phenomenally well right now. The funding levels are at record highs and they kind of future-proof the next few years. And the innovations that are being achieved in that space in, in oncology and, and orphan drugs and even with the, uh, with the vaccines uh, for, for COVID, they're, they're, they're actually a big player there as well. How have you changed the way that you know, the overall portfolio looks from a, from a geographic and a, and a market cap? position. In places like Europe, for example, we can find a number of names that we think are really interesting. Um, and then in particular, down the market cap, we think, you know, we're seeing a lot, lot, lots of interesting um, companies in the small, small mid cap end of the market. Uh, if you look at the, you know, the valuations versus historic norms, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're about average, you know, where they have traded over time, whereas in that large cap growth end of the market, they're well above historic norms. Um, so, yeah, we're finding lots of interesting, um, exciting opportunities there. How are the two of you thinking about opportunities that come from, you know, a, a reopening of economies? We've found a number of businesses that we think are really interesting from, from an opening up perspective. Um, so, for example, in, in Germany, again, um, we own a, an outdoor media business called Stroa, which is, um, you know, does digital um, uh, billboards. They have 60% market share um, in, in outdoor billboards across Germany. Um, they uh, have a really high quality management team that's highly aligned. So the two founders own 40% of the stock and one of them is still the current CEO. Um, they did a number... Um, they did some deals a, a, a years ago that we think have created some very interesting assets um, that will over time be real value where value will be realized over time. Um, so yeah, that, that's an example of a stock which has been the, the earnings and the, the revenues and the earnings have been hit through COVID um, as advertising was was stopped. Um, but it's a business with a fantastic, you know, industry position. Um, it will survive and has a management team highly aligned to you. Um, so we think it's very well placed as as we reopen. Um, yeah, so that's an example of stock we have we have looked at. We, I mean, earlier on in the um, as we came out of the pandemic, we thought domestic travel relative to international travel was obviously going to was going to rebound more quickly. So we looked at names, um, for example, in so in France, we owned um, a position in the largest caravan RV player in 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 Europe called Tregano. Um, so we thought that was an interesting interesting um, company because they were a, a leading player in the European market. Clearly, people still are itching to to travel, um, but they can't go far. Um, and so, and it had, you know, net cash balance sheet. Um, and and a and we rate the management rate the management team there and and again a, a founding family with a lot with a lot of stock. Um, so yeah, we played that earlier on, and then now we think we're more into those um, deeper hit um, line of fire stocks that are probably going to have the most potential to to re rate here. Um, but that's a you know there for us that's a portion of the portfolio, but. At the same time, we have a lot of these longer dated theme, thematic stocks that we think can benefit looking out five, 10 years. Final question for shareholders. 
we asked you for a bit of a, a message for them at the end of our, 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 um, our, our May Vault update. What's, have you got a message for shareholders at the moment? It's obviously been a really hard year, um, but I think what's getting, what, what you know, can get mixed with all the, the media, um, uh, you know, announcements and, and do, there can be a lot of doom and gloom um, presented you know, and around the risks and the and the um, downsides of coronavirus and and the but I think if we if we take a step back, um, we're relatively optimistic about you know the the coming period. Um, so and we can find we're not we're not um, struggling to find new ideas and and find companies that we want to invest in. Um, so yeah, we're we're we value their support. Um, very grateful for it um, and are relatively optimistic about about the period ahead. That base case everyone's factoring in now will be wrong. The, the low rate environment forever, um, that will be proven to be wrong and that will cause big shocks for the stock market. We're looking more at the growth commodities. So oil, we're looking at nickel, we're looking, we remain positive on copper. A lot of the beneficiaries over the last 12 months, how do they cycle? How do they comp those numbers over the next 12 or 24 months? I think the QE is a mistake though. It's at the end of the lockdown period, our economy was reopening, you've got a vaccine coming now. So I think the QE will distort some of the market prices in Australia. Value could become the next growth as the cyclical recovery starts to take shape. Tech sector looks overvalued. Um, I mean, that's a standout still. Um, prices could fall 30, 40% and I wouldn't be surprised um, if we go into this next phase. Things don't happen that quickly. And by human nature, we like to go back to what we know. So as soon as borders open up and as soon as people are able to dine out and travel again, you will see that in earnest. Guys, it's a really interesting time to be having a chat. There's been um, you know, a huge amount of stimulus in the market. We've also had some news that's caused a reaction around the, the prospect of a, a vaccine. Matt, when we were talking just before we got started today, you talked about common sense starting to return to the market. What does that mean? What is that common sense that's coming in? Well, James, I really think it's around, you know, the unprecedented response to monetary supply, you know, sending rates down to zero, negative. You had all the long duration assets just bid up, um, pulling forward expected returns to today, and the valuations were getting out of control. Um, what you're seeing now is some hope of some normality coming back into the market. So you're getting some rates moving up. A vaccine may cause monetary policy to be eased in the future and all those expected returns will be um, diminished over time um, because it's very sensitive at the moment because the rates are so low and you've got you know, probably their sweet spot at the moment while economies are shut down. Any change to those dynamics causes a massive impact. Yeah. What have been some of the impacts of all of this you know, money that's flowing through the system and particularly in the market where you guys are investing? Like, where is it, where is it going? Where is this flow of money headed? Yeah, I guess it's really around those long duration assets, infrastructure, anything with interest rate sensitivity. Um, but as we know, uh, monetary policy doesn't really fix the economy, it just boosts asset prices. So we've seen that at the moment. Anything to do with you know, duration or interest rate sensitivity, they've gone up a lot. But it really hasn't helped the economy as we've found over time. Monetary policy doesn't help the economy, fiscal policy does. The other thing to note is that over the last six months, markets have been very dislocated. We've had a lot of volatility, but that's created a lot of opportunity. So what we've seen is that for a period of three to six years, there was a one directional market where people were just buying long duration tech, 
just to kind of get to generate earnings and returns. Today, we have more opportunities in the market. There's more dislocation. So from that standpoint, from a day-to-day -day basis, we're more excited because we're, there's more opportunities to make money for our shareholders. So we're going to definitely dig into some of the, the opportunities in a second. But just while we're on the, the bigger picture story, um, the RBA has lowered rates again um, quite recently and announced um, you know, our own QE program. Um, what's your take on, 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 on that decision and, and the impact that it has, particularly in the large cap space? Yeah, I think the RBA move initially was very good. They were very quick to respond to the um, pandemic. Uh, lowering rates, you know, the, the, the funding for the banks was great. I think the QE is a mistake though. It's at the end of the lockdown period, our economy was reopening. You've got a vaccine coming now. So I think the QE will distort some of the market prices in Australia. Um, it's very good for property and the like, but I really think it's boring on a policy error. They've gone too late. They should have gone much earlier. And holding down yield curve control uh, hurts financial companies. Um, but it's quite interesting that the market interpreted the QE announcement from the RBA, probably in the way the RBA didn't want um, things to happen. The dollar shot up the long end of the yield curve shot up because I think the market's looking at this response as being too late and now it's actually going against what the RBA were trying to deliver which was lowering the Aussie dollar. So policy is too late, should have been earlier and I think it could cause some areas um, of concern around some of the valuations in Australia as well. So the, the thing to remember is Australia is ahead of the rest of the world from a recovery phase. We're almost already out of the corona phase and, the, and with the vaccine coming to the rest of the world, we've been able to manage and mitigate a lot of the risks a lot earlier. As Matt said, the RBA and policymakers in Australia were ahead of the curve early on uh, with JobKeeper and JobSeeker and stimulus and whatever else was required, but they're doubling down at the wrong time. And so by doubling down at the wrong time, probably backs us up a little bit compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, interesting. Um, maybe we could just have a, a quick chat about um, a, a recap from the conversation we had from May. Um, you guys were being very active in the market, um, trading opportunities, and, and you sort of talked about um, sort of being chained to your desks. Some of the themes that at the time were, were really, um, you, you were bullish on banks, you'd um, talked about having, having held some gold, um, you saw an opportunity in oil. I was wondering if you could maybe give me a, a recap on some of the views and how the portfolio has evolved and, and what's worked for you over the past six months? The, big, the biggest thing we focused on was the sequencing of the recovery. So from a portfolio construction standpoint, we tried to position ourselves from a sequencing standpoint, who's gonna come out first, second, third, and then we constructed the portfolio with that backdrop. So if you consider, as Matt would have said in May, we were very positive around China being the first ones out of the coronavirus and the recovery phase. So we're very heavily positioned to resources at that, at that time. Following that, we decided we decide to tilt the portfolio to banks as a lot more of the domestic cyclicals because we thought Australia would be the next country to come out of it. So you, you go from a flow perspective, we just started to, our money would flow from China to Australia to other markets where we thought the recovery would be taking shape. Um, you didn't mention the technology sector, which was has been a a huge beneficiary. Um, I know you've alluded to some um, lofty valuations. How have you managed not having exposure to technology and why haven't you had that exposure? I, I really think it's valuation for us. We just struggle um, trying to comprehend the market caps of these companies. Obviously the conditions are right for them to go up. Um, 
how we managed is by picking companies which John alluded to, we, we look at the phases of this recovery um, and we were quite early on the recovery phase domestically and companies like Star Group, SCG and a few of those um, more, they're at depressed levels like trading below NTAs and um, you know, people were thinking balance sheets were at risk and we never thought that was the case because of the controls within Australia. So, I mean, that's how we've kept up by picking these really depressed companies that are actually generating good cash flow. Um, and have good asset backing. So I, th I think the real important thing now is we're entering a different phase of the market. We were in, in the recovery phase now. Now with the potential vaccine, we're gonna have to look forward to how this economic output gap closes and that will benefit real companies. So we're looking for, towards those. So maybe can we dig into some more specifics? I'd love to hear about what's in the portfolio now. You talked about sequencing you know, the phase of the recovery. So that's a bit of a retrospective. Talk me through um, what's in now and, and how you're thinking about playing the next phase of this recovery. Well, well, really the next phase is moving, like I touched on, closing the output gap in the economy. So you've got potential G GDP sitting way higher and you've got this huge output gap. So we really need to close that output gap. And that closing of the output gap is consumer spending and also economic activity. So as that returns, you've got to be leveraged to those companies. And for us, that's, a, that's where we really um, do well in that environment because we're looking at these companies making good cash flow. Um, balance sheets will be rewarded finally. They were punished before, um, but good balance sheets will be rewarded in this environment. And you've got to be positioned for anything linked to economic activity or recovery. So. Um, in, in the area for us at the moment, things that stand out um, is in insurance sector. Again, that's very much out of favour at the moment, but that is a sector that will benefit from you know rising yields, but also the premium cycle is incredibly hard at the moment and has been ignored. And anything paying a dividend as well. Dividend payers have been punished in this environment, which is quite bizarre. Um, they will be the next beneficiaries as well. So you've got to find companies with good dividends because um, they will be the next beneficiaries. So the insurance names are IAG and QBE, but other aspects that we like to focus on is what the company's exposed to government spend. So stocks like Lendlease and uh, Down or conti should continue to do well over the next 12 to 24 months. Elsewhere, what Corona and COVID has provided is an opportunity for companies to re, uh, refocus on their cost base, reposition and restructure so as what we're going to see when we come out the other side is more profitability in corporate Australia. So if you take Qantas for an example, what they were able to achieve during Corona, they wouldn't have been able to achieve previously. So they were able to readdress their cost base. And as you come out the other side, their domestic earnings will probably be greater than their, their, their peak earnings for the group in totality from 2018. So we're very positive around corporate Australia that, that have been able to restructure their, their, their cost base and refocus on growth in the future. You've mentioned a few stocks there. I'd love it if one of you, I don't mind too, could just take me a little bit deeper inside a, a really core position, something where you've got a lot of conviction about how you want to play. You think it's a good example of some of those things that you've talked about and maybe just take me a little bit deeper inside the thesis. Well, what I can touch on is IAG, the insurance company. So IAG, there is a great debate around the exposure with business insurance. So again, what we like to do um, is find companies where the market has got an opinion and then we try to find the opposite um, and work through that. So we've worked through it quite often uh, with different analysts, um, also lawyers, and talking about business insurance. And we think the market's um, impact or the perceived impact will be a lot less than um, you know the, 
what they perceive. So we think the IAG's exposure will be much, much less and the market's sort of factoring over a billion, a billion and a half, which we think is very wrong. So IAG is a specific example of a company uh, during the pandemic, there was all this, um, you know, liability, which could be a lot of people thinking unlimited, but we think it's very much contained. So um, that is a company that has been caught up in the hype around the pandemic. So that is a, a very specific case. Um, but also you've got the potential of interest rates rising, which is a small portion of their earnings. But the real key is the um, premium cycle is incredibly hard. So you've got tailwinds coming out of this. And once BI is released, we think there'll be an incredible upside for this company. Um, materials has been a, a sector that's held up pretty well. Uh, there's been some strength in commodity prices. John, you mentioned China came out early. It's been um, supportive for that, for that part of the market. How have you guys played the materials sector? Is it, is it a core part of the portfolio now? It remains, it remains an overweight key, a key sector. So for, for the last two, three years, uh, bulks, so BHP, Fortescue, Rio, have been the main driver of our material overweight. Uh, and they've, done, they've been massive beneficiaries from China stimulus, uh, supply shocks from uh, Brazil. But as we sit here today, a lot of that has taken shape and taken place. So we're looking more at the growth commodities. So oil, we're looking at nickel, we're looking, we remain positive on copper. So we're starting to rotate away slightly from the bulks and starting to look more towards the base metals inside the, the, the oil stocks. Uh, as we think as recovery takes shape, they should be well positioned uh, looking forward. And is there a, a, a core or a lead position that sort of explains that rotation or that you can use as a case for that rotation? Uh, I mean, the, the most obvious one for us has been Oz Minerals. So um, again, um, there was some company specific um, um, things, which was the company was upgrading its um, production and uh, the CapEx was very much on target for their, their expansion, which was uh, under question for a period. But it was really around uh, the coronavirus knocking out a lot of the copper output um, in South America. So that was a beneficiary that we played and we've been riding into this recovery phase. So uh, for us, copper, like John said, um, very much activity-led um, commodity. And we think in the next phase, it, we will position to do well. Um, we've talked uh, a lot about sort of the, the core parts of the portfolio. I know you guys have a tactical way of thinking about the market as well. How is that balance between core and the, the tactical trading opportunities sitting at the moment? And, and what, where are some of the opportunities that, that you guys are thinking about from that shorter term um, trading perspective? The market provided a lot of opportunities recently. And as Matt pointed out, that you know, and you mentioned earlier that we were glued to our desk for a long period of time during the last six months. And people react in certain ways to information. What our job's to do is to process this information and work out if it's an overreaction, long or short. So if people have got a bit too aggressive on stock and we own it, we've got to capitalise on those opportunities one way or another. Um, and where we sit today, it's just a function of opportunities in the market. So we've been presented with a lot more structural core positions within the portfolio over, over the recent past. But uh, as we look forward, we're probably going to have to start to look towards some of the shorter term trading opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah. Um, there's been all these big headline events in the papers. We've had um, the US elections been dominating, coronavirus, vaccine, uh, government stimulus. What do you think has been missed while we've all been looking at these headlines? What are some, what's, what, what has the market missed? Well, I think what happens during a, um, a shock or event is people get used to the current situation and extrapolate it for a long period of time. 
So we're actually in emergency settings uh, globally uh, on monetary policy and fiscal, and the rate environment is incredibly low, and everyone's extrapolating this out for a long period of time, um, but this won't happen. This, this is a shock. Um, during a crisis, normally it's a, a structural crisis. You've got to deflate a bubble. This is a shock event, so everything's been put on hold, but there is no uh, essential bubble to deflate. So if you can get policy fiscal policy kicking things along, monetary holding up asset prices, and we can recover out of this, that base case everyone's factoring in now will be wrong. The, the low rate environment forever, um, that will be proven to be wrong and that will cause big shocks through the stock market. And we're starting to see a bit of a glimpse of that now as we move out of phase one, which is pandemic, phase two, recovery and return to normality. Um, we are in phase two uh, if the vaccine is here, but everyone's caught in phase one still. So that transition will be quite painful for a lot of people. I was gonna ask you where value is because that's where we started our last conversation. You gave us a great answer, but I'm gonna flip it on its head and say, where, where don't you see value given you're talking about coming from phase one to phase two? Well, I guess it's anything to do with interest rate sensitivity um, and uh, high valuations. So again, we look to the tech sector as overvalued um, if the vaccine comes. I mean, it's all contingent on the vaccine because we're actually looking pretty terrible globally on the virus situation is accelerating uh, to the negative side. So exa vaccine, you'd be piling into that trade because policy will be have to meet that virus. But if that virus is contained, uh, policy will change. So tech sector looks overvalued. Um, I mean, that's a standout still. Um, prices could fall 30, 40% and I wouldn't be surprised um, if we go into this next phase. And a lot of those beneficiaries, as we mentioned earlier, of, of, the, of, of corona, the COVID, uh, the stay at home trade, so to speak, you know, people have, you, you can't put a multiple on this year's sales or this year's earnings. And, and we'd heed caution on that because they will not be able to comp these as people start to return to normal life. So although people have suggested structural change has happened a lot more rapidly, as we know in the past, things don't happen that quickly. And by human nature, we like to go back to what we know. So as soon as borders open up and as soon as people are able to dine out and travel again, you will see that in earnest. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we are in a situation where you're not able to get face to face with your investors, um, which is obviously disappointing. Um, this is the way that we're doing it. Um, in 2020, what's the message that the two of you have got uh, to, your, to your shareholders and investors in WAM Leaders? Well, I think the next 12, 18 months is incredibly exciting. I think uh, we're going to go into this recovery phase. This will be more our market, even though we've actually performed well in a, you know, this very dislocated market. Um, we're very excited about the, you know, the good companies coming back to decent valuations from the depressed levels they are now. And we think we can position the portfolio incredibly well over the next period um, as it plays out. So we're, we're very excited about the opportunities, very excited about um, some of the companies that we can still purchase at um, discounts uh, to what we think they were. So um, this environment is great for us. And, and lastly, it's, we're living through history and it's exciting times to, 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 to take note of how people react, how markets are moving, because We'll be reading about this in 20 years and look back and go, okay, this is what happened. So mm. it's just a great time. We've just got to stay glued to markets and, and enjoy, enjoy the ride. All right. Well, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Australians spend around 50 to $60 billion um, every year offshore. So a big portion of that money is now coming domestically and a big beneficiary has been the automotive sectors. The key for us is understanding the customer value proposition. 
So the companies that we invest in have very strong value propositions where it is proven that the customer really needs their products. Analyst projections were very negative for these companies and really forecasting a, a doomsday scenario. But as it's turned out, Australia's done a fantastic job to stop COVID effectively. And with borders reopening, we do see a very strong period for these companies. More recently though, we've started to invest back into housing on the back of our view that the historically low interest rates, the strong government fiscal support, and over time, lenders will relax lending criteria is going to drive housing activity. What's been lost on the market is the cash flow these companies are generating right now is at record levels. So there's going to be a lot of cash on these balance sheets with minimal debt. So we do see the potential for earnings accretive acquisitions going forward, which we think will be the next leg for growth in this sector. When we caught up in May, you outlined a bullish view, which turns out to have been a solid call. What's your view now if we, if we do that sort of looking forward, are you bullish bearish? How would you answer that same question as we sit here in November? I was chatting to my parents uh, this week and they were blowing up about how you can get a fixed term interest rate for five years, less than 2% these days. And they would have loved to have that uh, back in 1991 when interest rates were close to 20%. So I think with that backdrop, it's hard not to be bullish on the market. And particularly when we've seen um, the extreme measures by central banks and governments uh, globally um, to support economies coming out of COVID. And we've also seen a relatively positive outcome to the US election. And we've also seen um, a potential vaccine. So we think we're very positive on the markets uh, going forward. And I think within that context, we're very positive on small caps. And I think it went back in May, I think I was probably more positive on large caps. I actually see one of the best environments for small caps we've seen in some time. And this largely reflects the fact that around 40% of the stocks that we look at in the small cap market are exposed to the economy in some way. So I'm talking about sectors like retail, uh, building materials, uh, automotive. So we do see a very strong period for small cap companies uh, going forward. Um, if we just stay on that, so so as we sit here, you really feel like there's, there's confidence in this um, reopening process now and, and that's really the opportunity um, for, you to, for you to find opportunities going forward? I'd say, look, if we, if we split it up into two, so if we go back into when we last spoke in May, I, we would have talked about sectors like retail, domestic tourism, uh, housing that we were positioning the portfolio into and a lot of these companies were exposed to Australia and if you can go back in, back in time and think about May, um, Australia was in a much better place than the rest of the world. And as it's turned out, we're in November, we've done, we've done an incredible job at managing COVID. So a lot of those trades have played out and we have reduced our weightings to those sectors. But where we see some value at the moment is looking at those companies that have significant international operations in COVID impacted regions such as Europe and the United States, where analysts have been forecasting a very negative scenario for these companies over the next two or three years. And we do see a number of companies and I could rattle off a number of names like United Malt, which is one of the largest malt processors uh, globally, Ramsey Healthcare, one of the largest private hospital operators. And also we've been adding positions in um, some of our existing names like skincare manufacturer, BWX, and also Infomedia, which is a technology company. Yeah. It's quite a different set of companies to what we talked about in May. And, and one of the themes that we did touch on in depth at, um, in May was around agriculture. Um, is that still a theme that you think presents an opportunity? Yeah, we, we think it's actually, it's a great theme. And um, I think what's driven our, our bullishness on that sector is the fact that the crop has just gotten, well, the, the, the rain that we've seen on the East Coast has just gotten better and better. Um, and in fact, if you look at the recent crop forecast from ABET, which is the government body 
that forecasts the size of the crop. Um, it was actually 24.3 million tonnes uh, in September, and that's actually the largest forecast that we've seen in the last decade. Now, the rain we've, recent rain we've seen over the last few months means that we think this crop forecast will get upgraded um, again. Now, what you generally see after periods of, of long drought is that when you have a big crop or a lot of rain like we've seen in the La Nina period, it'll extend for a number of years. So we're still very positive on the sector. Um, we've got our two biggest holdings would be Elders and Grain Corp. Uh, Elders will benefit as more farmers buy crop protection products. Grain Corp is the most leveraged to an increase in the crop size. We also think that a number of the efficiency gains and cost savings implemented by management over the last few years will come through in the numbers. But we do also see a number of other companies that will benefit over the near, over the medium term. One company that's under the radar a little bit is Select Harvest, which is um, one of the largest, well, one of the largest uh, almond uh, uh, processors in Australia. And um, they've been impacted by COVID and a lack of demand for almonds in, in regions such as India and China. If we have a vaccine, we see some more support in the almond price. Uh, we see significant upside to the share price in Select Harvest. Mm. The ag sector, it is so cyclical. You sort of outlined a bit of a bull thesis there. What are some of the, the things that you look out for? What can derail the thesis there? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating one. I, I, went, I, I just went to uh, Byron Bay and Yamba. really like Yamba, by the way. It's a great spot. But, um, and I was looking at uh, the weather, quite a lot going into it, and I, all I saw was thunderstorms. Um, <laughs> And maybe that's just a part of my personality. I probably shouldn't do that. It was really annoying um, my family. But anyway, um, but it's, it's clear to the weather. And particularly for something like Grain Corp, which, you know, we were on the verge of harvesting what was a record crop and we've seen the onset of hailstorms. Um, you know, it was a big risk. And we actually sold some Grain Corp going into it because the hailstorms forecast were actually going to be quite large. Now, as it turned out, it wasn't as bad as what perhaps we had thought. We actually brought back in um, a week or so later. So... Um, Definitely the weather is the biggest impact for, uh, for these ag stocks. But as I said, it's a record crop. It generally will have a good few years after this. Um, so we're very positive on the sector. We can't talk about small caps without talking about um, the high-flying technology names. And they're not so small anymore. A number of these wax stocks are moving up into the, into, into the top couple of hundred. What's your view on, on technology? And if you can talk specifically around valuations and then, I guess, how do you get exposure to te technology in a sensible way? Hmm. So the wax companies are the tech leaders on the ASX. The challenge for us is that often these companies are always fairly valued. So as a team, we spend more of our time trying to identify the undervalued growth companies that could be the future tech leaders. So there are two themes that we like. The first theme is around the disruption to traditional retail by the e-commerce companies, which we have spoken extensively about over the last 12 months. Um, the recent share price appreciation and the volatility uh, has garnered a lot of interest. However, we continue to be strong believers in the e-commerce names because we believe the structural shift is here to stay. Now, the key for us is to be very selective. Companies like Templin Webster and Adore Beauty, we believe are exhibiting very strong unit economics and strong customer loyalty. And so as a result, we believe they're very well positioned to continue to grow uh, in the future. For example, both of these companies were growing at more than 50% in a pre-COVID lockdown environment. And that's a signal to us that these companies can continue to generate those strong revenue growth in the future. Yeah. We're sitting at a point where, you know, the prospect of, 
of travel is becoming more real than it has been um, in the past. We've had news about um, you know vaccine, and, and, and people are talking about the prospect of even heading offshore. Um, you know, we're going to see, I suspect, some more movement domestically as well. What's the opportunity in tourism? Is it is it a local opportunity? Is it a global opportunity? We think it's a mixture of both. Um, if we start off with domestic tourism, I think I talked about this back in May, probably thought we were all mad to be investing with those companies at that point in time. But I guess when you're looking forward, um, yeah, analyst projections were very negative for these companies and really forecasting a, a doomsday scenario. But as it's turned out, Australia's done a fantastic job uh, to, to stop COVID effectively. And with borders reopening, we do see a very strong period for these companies. Um, so companies such as Sealink, which is the largest bus and ferry operator in Australia, Ingenia, which is um, provider of manufactured homes and tourist parks, and also Tourism Holdings, which is the largest rental company of, of motorhomes uh, in New Zealand, Australia, and the United States. I think actually a really interesting anecdote was around June, ourselves and Wham Global caught up with uh, Thor and Winnebago, which is the largest manufacturers of, of camper vans effectively in the world. And at the time they were flying. Um, they couldn't get enough stock on the ground. Um, effectively pricing was going up. And they said to us, they said, look, this is a very similar scenario environment that we saw back at September 11, back in 2001, where you saw a period of two or three years where people didn't want to fly um, and they wanted to drive. Um, and so if you look back at uh, Winnebago and Thor, their revenue growth over that period of time was very, very strong. And that was a big catalyst for us really to, to invest in a number of those companies that were exposed to driving. Um, and hence why we're positive on domestic tourism. Okay, and what about globally? I've got a trip to the Maldives to go surfing has been put on hold indefinitely <laughs> and I'm itching to go surfing. When, you know, that's not an opportunity for me at the moment. Are you thinking about playing offshore players? Yeah, so we also invested in uh, flight centre and corporate travel management. I mean, the initial thesis was that these companies and their cost-out uh, management programs were going better than expected, uh, which gives them ample liquidity to navigate the next 24 months from a COVID environment perspective. More recently, the, the potential vaccine has potentially pulled forward the revenue profile, um, so we continue to um, be bullish to these companies. So you've really looked at how those companies have got themselves in good shape and taken you know, sort of looked out, looked out a bit further. 100%. Well, I think, I think the interesting thing was when we went to the August reporting season was there was, you know, there was a number of companies that had done well in, in various sectors, but there was one sector that had not done well, and that was international tourism effectively. So I think Webjet, Corporate Travel, Flight Centre. And their short interests were building in those companies. Um, and we did a lot of extensive work around their balance sheets, and we thought at the time they were fine um, and they could really get through this period. And we, that was the time when we invested in those companies. As Tobias said, they've done quite well for us. So we've now seen the next leg, which is a potential vaccine. And what that means is that when people are forecasting the earnings for these companies, they might have been saying, well, we think in five years' time, you know, it's going to be similar to what it was in 2019. Well, maybe it's not five years' time now, maybe it's four years' time. And that's what's brought it forward. So that's why we quite like that sector. You mentioned a road trip and, and it's been a, a really big theme, this domestic travel. Um, you hear stories about people not being able to, you know, get access to new cars, the Toyota Prados are out of stock, all this sort of business, and it was something that we talked about. Um, you, you know, auto's been strong. Is it still an opportunity or is, has, has, has that something that's, that's rolled over now? Yeah, auto's been a fascinating sector for us. Um, we really did position uh, the portfolio in a number of names back, back in May, and I think 
when I had this um, interview last time, we talked about the fact that we saw um, the potential for um, increased driving kilometre or, or kilometres driven just as people uh, prefer to drive a car instead of use public transport when they go to work and also to drive a car when they go on a holiday instead of use a plane or a cruise. Now, while that's partly um, driven the auto sector, I actually think what's been more important is the fact that we can't travel overseas. And Australians spend around 50 to $60 billion um, every year um, offshore. So a big portion of that money is now coming domestically and a big beneficiary has been the automotive sector. So companies such as BAPCOR, Super Retail, GD Holdings, um, AP Eagers, Motorcycle Holdings, they've done very well for us. And we actually saw very strong updates um, over October and we did take the liberty to reduce our positions uh, in these companies. Now, in saying that, we are actually very positive on this sector still. And I think what's been lost on the market is the cash flow these companies are generating right now is at record levels. So there's going to be a, um, a lot of cash on these balance sheets with minimal debt. So we do see the potential for earnings accretive acquisitions going forward, which we think will be the next leg for growth in this sector. So sort of if you were to sum, I know we've talked about a few of the things that you do like, but if I could get you to kind of summarise what you think some of the compelling opportunities that are in the fund right now, how you give people a sense of how you position for the, for the next period. So housing is definitely one of them. Um, I think this time last year, we talked about our positive outlook on housing. Unfortunately, due to the COVID market volatility, we had to significantly reduce our housing exposure in the last financial year. More recently though, we've started to invest back into housing on the back of our view that the historically low interest rates, the strong government fiscal support, and over time, lenders will relax lending criteria is gonna drive housing activity. So companies we like uh, include uh, Brickworks, which is a brick manufacturer in Australia and the US, and AFG, which uh, owns the largest network of mortgage brokers. Yeah, I think childcare is an interesting in industry as well. I mean, you could have gotten a more impacted in the industry through COVID. It's a very important industry uh, for the government in particular to get people back working. So we think the government will support the industry, but probably more importantly, is this, this industry for the last five or six years has been really impacted by an increase of supply of childcare centres. We don't expect to be seeing that over the next few years. So we do think the incumbent operators, which is uh, G8 Education, which is the largest in Australia, and also Evolve Education, which is the largest in New Zealand, are poised to benefit. What are some of the things that you think uh, are not grabbing headline attention that, that might be getting overlooked? Yeah, I think over the last 10 years, we've seen companies exposed to the housing market underperform the ASX by about 50%. We think this will turn around in the next few years, and this is due to record low interest rates, uh, fiscal support for the industry, as uh, we think Australia will, will basically have a housing boom over the next two to three years. If um, you got a message for shareholders, opportunity, you know, we didn't get to get face-to-face -face with them again in November, um, you know, what message would you leave them about um, you know, the opportunity in, in WAM Capital and WAM Micro at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, great opportunity to thank everyone for their support. I mean, it has been a very difficult time. It's nice to be back in the office and seeing everyone. I think oh, yesterday I had my first meeting with an analyst from a stockbroker since January. So it's, it's, you know, it's great to be going back to normality. Team's doing very, very well. Um, that's just the wider team with the guys in WAM Leaders and WAM Global. So, um, yeah, all, all of the shareholders have been very supportive and, you know, fingers crossed we can, we can catch up with you all in May in 2021. Great. Well, thank you both for taking the time to sit down and um, talk us through how you're putting their money to work. Thank you.
If you have a portfolio that has a specific target to infrastructure, you'll be forced to continue buying these assets regardless of the price. It's all about understanding the macro fundamentals and understanding the megatrends. Leases are structured in a way that rents have annual fixed increases and you are getting this stable income return that is growing over time. At the same time, you're getting fairly good capital appreciation. These are essential services that people have been using, they are using them and they will be using them in the future. A look at an average super fund, you would see that 20 to 25% of the total portfolio would be invested in alternative assets. Alternative asset classes have lower in some cases negative correlation to equities than any other asset classes. When you talk about private equity and public equity market, how some opportunities, they don't even reach equity markets. If you do want as an investor to get access to those growth opportunities, it is important to add alternatives to your overall portfolio. Could you tell me and, and tell shareholders a little bit about your own background and your philosophy for investing? I am a strong believer in more of a holistic approach when it comes to investing in alternative asset classes. So what I mean by this is that rather than building a portfolio that has very specified sleeves like real estate, infrastructure, agriculture, timber, etc., and very specific allocation targets. I like to think about alternative assets portfolio as a very flexible portfolio. Yes, you do need to have a strategy, you do need to have long-term targets, but because the market is changing and the opportunity set is changing, valuations are changing, you do need to be very flexible and assess the relative value of different sub-asset classes within alternatives. So, for example, three, four years ago, more traditional infrastructure looked really expensive. We saw some transactions, in particular in sectors like airports and ports, are happening at the highest historical levels in terms of the equity multiples. Where do you allocate your capital during this time? So if you have a portfolio that has a specific target to infrastructure, you'll be forced to continue buying these assets regardless of the price. But if you have more flexibility within the portfolio construction, then you can look at other sectors. Let's look at real estate, let's look at private debt, at private equity, and see where I can find more attractive opportunities in terms of the entry price. And that's how I think about this. It's important to have this bigger picture, um, understand the driving fundamentals across sub-asset classes, understand the megatrends that are driving those asset classes. You've talked about a few different asset classes that sit within alternatives. I think for people um, that are getting exposure for the first time, could you just talk through the sorts of asset classes that you'll be looking to invest in? Just let's take, take a step back and think about alternative assets. It's a very broad universe, very broad term as well, um, used differently by many investors. Alternative assets 
are tangible assets. Most of them are tangible assets that have substance, and this substance has value. Asset classes that have very specific investment characteristics that's, that define them from other asset classes, like inflation hedge, very strong income return potential, capital appreciation potential, very strong diversification benefits, but also something that gives you access to unique trends in terms of the macroeconomic shifts. The way we see it, alternative assets include asset classes like real estate, infrastructure, private equity, venture capital, asset classes like debt, private debt, real estate debt, um, and real assets. Real assets, uh, we talk about agriculture, water rights, timber, etc. So very broad um, universe. And within the current portfolio, we already have exposure to private equity, venture capital, real assets, and um, a little bit of real estate um, in the portfolio as well. Going forward, we will be looking uh, at expanding it into new asset classes like private debt. And when I, when I think about private debt, uh, this has been an asset class over the last few years that has attracted a lot of attention from investors because banks, not only in Australia, but also globally, they are under a lot of regulatory pressures. And they are stepping back more and more in terms of providing lending opportunities mm -hmm. to businesses. So we do see more private lenders coming in, both on the business side, like small, medium-sized enterprises, but also on the real estate side. In terms of the framework that you use for identifying opportunities, I, I think you talk about um, trying to identify mega trends or, or super trends. Could you just talk to me a little bit more about that framework? Um, you sort of talked about infrastructure. Yeah. Explain that process that you use for finding opportunities. Investment process for us is a mix of this top-down approach and bottom-up. Very common phrase, you know, when you talk to equity investors, they would use very similar term. In terms of the top-down, it's all about understanding the macro fundamentals and understanding the megatrends. Now, I use this word a lot, megatrends. Uh, it's but popular. It's, it's popular. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it sounds very exciting and it is exciting. But basically, these are the major macro shifts that have very strong tailwinds. So in our current environment, those megatrends would be aging population, increasing demand for food on the back of the growing global population. It will be trends like digitalization of our economy, of our society, innovation. It will be trends like climate change. Um, I think aging population is something that concerns many economies and many governments. So we start seeing more and more this trend translating into investment strategies. Probably real estate might be a good example. Like if we think about real estate in Australia, again, traditionally you would think about asset sectors like office, retail, logistics, industrial, etc. Now, 
there are other sectors that are less traditional and they have those they are supported by those strong tailwinds. And one of these sectors is healthcare real estate. Now, I'm not talking about buying a hospital and operating this hospital. This is something different. This is more of an infrastructure strategy. I'm talking about an asset itself, actual property. While office, retail and logistics, they are going through major structural changes, in particular on the back of COVID-19. It really is changing the universe, it's changing how investors are seeing those sectors, it's changing the income and capital appreciation um, profile, it changes the risk profile. Sector like healthcare real estate continues to thrive even through this economic um, downturn that we are experiencing. Why is it happening? Because these are essential services that people have been using, they are using them and they will be using them in the future. We have aging population in Australia. I can give you some statistics. In um, 2013 we had um, I think it was a data published by Australian Bureau of Statistics. We had a population of about 14% of the total population aged 65 years and over. They project that by 2050, this will reach 21% of the total population. This puts a lot of pressure on the healthcare system. This puts a lot of pressure on the governments, so there is a lot of support to healthcare service providers to improve their services, to expand their services. Where do they do this? They do this in hospitals. And hospitals, they are property assets. So a strategy here is really to go and find those assets or develop them and then lease them to an operator, operators like Ramsey, Healthy, etc., like large name, like good yeah. brands. Or you go, like you, you have young kids, um, I'm sure you take them during the spring season to, to see the GP. Yeah. Where do you go? You go to a medical center. Again, this is a property asset. Or you need to do a blood test, you go to a lab. This is a property asset. So the strategy here is really to go and build a portfolio of those property assets, lease them to operators. The attraction here is that those leases are very long-term leases. We are talking about 10 to 15 years leases. Leases are structured in a way that rents have annual fixed increases and you are getting this stable income return that is growing over time. At the same time, you're getting fairly good capital appreciation because there is restricted supply on these assets. So this puts healthcare real estate as a very attractive asset class versus some more traditional um, sectors within, within real estate. And we have strong relationship uh, with uh, with one investment team in Australia that is now implementing the strategy and building the portfolio. I was wondering if you could explain to people um, the role that um, alternative assets plays within a broader portfolio. And I think for a lot of investors, it's 
um, you know, accessing these opportunities hasn't been so easy in the past. So um, I guess maybe just talk about, um, you know, why people might not have had exposure to alternatives before. Alternative asset classes, they do form a very big part of an investment portfolio. So, um, you know, you mentioned institutional investors, look at an average super fund, you would see that 20 to 25% of the total portfolio would be invested in alternative assets. So it's a very important asset class for institutional investors, and I would add for any investor, because it provides very strong diversification benefits. Alternative asset classes have lower, in some cases, negative correlation to equities than any other asset classes. It also gives or has some certain investment characteristics that are not easily accessible in other asset class. For example, in inflation hedge, when we talk about infrastructure, real estate, some other asset classes, they all would be serving very strong inflation hedge. They have very strong income return component, not all of them, and we can talk about this later, like for example, private equity strategy would be predominantly focusing on capital growth and capital appreciation. Real estate and infrastructure, agriculture, water rights, they would be predominantly delivering income return over time. And these are the asset classes where you can access these themes and trends that we talked about. And often those themes, they are not accessible in equity markets. So I really like examples when you talk about private equity and public equity market how some opportunities, they don't even reach equity markets. Like for example, Facebook or Uber initially, they were venture capital investments. Same with Spotify, you know, this application that you use on your iPhone for music, it actually never really went through IPO because it was so successful raising capital from private investors. So. If you do want as an investor to get access to those growth opportunities, it is important to add alternatives to your overall portfolio. You did ask this question why historically it hasn't been easy to access this asset class. There are several reasons for this. One is that it's an asset class where you need to have scale when you go and build a portfolio. Uh, by scale, I mean, if you look at an institutional quality offering, the minimum ticket size would usually start from five to 10 million. So you do need to have scale to build the diversified portfolio. You do need to have very strong network, very strong relationships with the investment teams in order to access it because the capacity is limited. And so you've named a a broad universe of investment opportunities. As we sit here today, where are you seeing value? Value. Where do I see opportunity? That, that's, that's the question for me. Um, very exciting time because so many things are changing now in the economies, globally, not only in Australia, in our society. And really the opportunities I'm focusing on are the ones that have or are supported by strong tailwinds. Um, factors like aging population, 
increasing demand for food on the back of, eight, of, of the growing global population. Digitalization of our economy, of our society, innovation. Um, I think these are all the trends I'm focusing on. And then within each of those trends, I would select strategies that are implementable in alternative asset classes. And, um, you know, you've been with Wilson Asset Management a relatively short time. Uh, how's that experience been? It's been, it's been excellent, absolutely fantastic. I am very excited to work alongside people like Jeff Wilson and Kate and the rest of the team. Um, I think it's the team that has such a strong integrity and when I observe the interaction between the investment team and shareholders, I can see that there is strong and deep trust. The relationships also have been spanning over many years and the shareholders are very loyal to Wilson Asset Management. But also what I really like, and it's in line with my beliefs because when I manage capital on someone's behalf, I have fiduciary duty to advocate on behalf of my investors, on behalf of my shareholders. And this is what Wilson Asset Management is excellent about. They are advocating on behalf of the shareholders. They are prepared to fight through for any regulatory changes that might not be beneficial for the investors or for shareholders. They are innovative in the way the investment strategies are structured or the investment offerings are structured. And they are thinking forward. You know, the example that we now have WMA as part of our business, it's an example of forward thinking. It's an example of vision because Alternative asset classes has a very strong future. A final message on a personal note, an opportunity to say something to Wilson Asset Management uh, investors. What, what would you like to say to them at a, at a personal level? At a personal level? Well, I would like to say that I am truly passionate about this asset class. I really believe it can make a significant difference to the investment outcome of the overall investment portfolio. And I am excited to be working together with Wilson Asset Management team because their way of operating, their way of working with shareholders is very much in line with my personal beliefs as well. And so I am looking forward working together with the shareholders, advocating on their behalf and delivering the financial outcomes that will support their financial well-being over long term. Great. Well, listen, it was lovely to meet you today. Thank you very much for hosting us. Thank and, you, And uh, best of luck in your new role.